I'm Tom Sons. This is Year Zero. Today is going to be a solo episode. I don't do a lot of solo episodes. I haven't done one in quite a while. I'm not extremely comfortable with them, but I felt like the podcast I did with Pete could use a follow-up as far as a little bit more detail. So I'm going to be taking y'all through my notes. It might be a little boring. It's not going to be a conversation. I really feel like I do better playing off of other people, having a conversation with people. Um, I'm a lot more comfortable in that format. Uh, I don't really like doing interviews, so to speak. I, I usually just like having a conversation with people, just seeing where it goes. So this is not the most comfortable I've ever been, yet my most downloaded podcast on QAnon is, was a solo podcast. So I figure with this subject, I can get into it and expand on it a little bit more than I did when Pete and I were talking about it, I really feel like that's a good primer on the subject and introduce you to the subject. But I'm going to get a little bit more into the meat of the subject here. But first, as always, RyanBunting.com for all of your graphic design needs. Go to RyanBunting.com. He's a great anarcho-capitalist and libertarian, and he's a great graphic designer. He designed my podcast logo and Pete's podcast logo. So that would be ryanbunting.com and grab a copy of his book while you're there. And always, thank you, Tom Burton, for the music. Um, I'm going to set this mic down. Uh, because I'm in my truck, I don't have like a mic stand. But I'm going to set it down and uh, I'll Hopefully, it doesn't mess with the audio too badly. I know that with the truck running and the AC on, there's a little bit of background noise that y'all can hear, and I will clean that up as best I can. Um, but yeah, it's going to be a lot easier if I set this mic down. So I'm going to set this down just to make it a tad bit easier. On Hopefully, that is not too far away. You can hear me still pretty well. Uh, as I said, I will clean it up as best I can, and hopefully it comes out all right. There's going to be a lot of reading here that I'm going to be doing. So like I said, it might be a little bit dull. I will stop and give you my interpretations every so often, uh, but there's going to be a lot of reading. So to start off, the fact that politicians are in the business of accumulating power and wealth, while corporations are in the business of accumulating wealth and influence, makes this a natural marriage in our time. They each want their fingers in every crevice of the world for their own purposes. They want to be in your life. They want to know what you're doing and, and how you're doing it, where you're doing it, who you're doing it with, so that they can gather that, that, that figure out how to leverage it over you. But they're good enough at propaganda to convince the average blue pill that the latest bailout that redistributes their wealth to the bankers and corporations is good for every party involved. And in all actuality, it is going to create more wealth for them 
than it will for the banks and the corporations. Although all of us know that that is a lie. That every time they take the wealth from the middle class and they give it to the, the bankers and the corporations, they're handing them your future, your wealth, the, your labor is being handed to them. But this is pretty standard operating procedure when you're discussing the partnership between the public and private sector. Unfortunately, when you bring up Klaus Schwab or the WEF in regards to their influence over government, a lot of people have been so subjected to the mainstream propaganda that they're unable to even consider the unholy matrimony that is taking place. You know, the elephant in the room here is the NWO, the New World Order. We hear it all the time. It's the New World Order. <laughs> and it was something that presidents talked about. And it was something that bankers talked about. It, it was it was an open, it was like the most open conspiracy theory ever in the history of the world. But what were they talking about when they were talking about the New World Order? So when I first read The Grand Chessboard by Zbigniew Brzezinski, I was convinced that the New World Order was a reference to American hegemony around the world, or hegemony, however you say that, hegemony, hegemony, yeah. Anyway, they were looking at spreading democracy by military intervention. But as I mentioned in Pete's podcast, and some of this is going to be repetitious, that there was this undertone, he was always talking about oil and gas industries of the nations. And as I read more Brzezinski and other authors in the same vein, I've concluded that the NWO is not American hegemony or hegemony, but corporate hegemony, working in a conglomerate with countries around the world. So it's not, you know, sectarian on the basis of country. There's, it, it's, it, it, it's working, it's utilizing these systems that are in place in, in these countries, their, their domestic politic in order to create more wealth and influence for themselves at the citizens' expense. And it just became more evident the more I read. So in between two ages, Brzezinski calls America a porous empire, stimulating economies, introducing international banking and building corporations as a tool of nation-building, much more than, than utilizing military domination. And this is carving a path for a broader business relationship across the globe. He goes on to lay out how America's development of technology and diversity has moved it into an international order, a world without borders, a land blurred by the public and private sectors unable to distinguish between the two and making cross-institutional cooperation easier. He then discusses keeping the peace through an international order with a common goal of science and technology, driving the world's focus into the future. So this was not unique to Brzezinski. This was not his plan originally. Well, it wasn't his original idea, I should say. This plan started long before Brzezinski, at least in the American sense and tradition of the public-private partnership or the corporatocracy, whatever you want to call it. 
You know, some people call it, you know, oligarchy. Some people call it kleptocracy, plutocracy, you know, whatever, man. It's technocratic corporate rule by leveraging the power of the government institutions that are in place on that in that particular nation. And this was a creation of the Dulles brothers. Alan Dulles and John Foster Dulles. Now in the book Brothers by, by Stephen Kinzer, which I highly recommend if you're interested in the development of the CIA and covert operations, that is a great place to start. It's a very well-written book. But in this book, Brothers, by Stephen Kinzer, he describes how the Dulles brothers, at a young age, were international bankers for uh, Sullivan and Cromwell. And, well, they were really attorneys, but they were acting on behalf of the banking sector in other nations and creating these global conglomerates through business and political uh, relationships. And they became so popular and so good at what they did at such an early age that they were they were giving advice to Woodrow Wilson. They were considered, you know, kind of under the table advisors of his, and he confided in them. And it was through their tutelage that he sent the Navy to Cuba to save an American sugar in, uh, company. So it was their tutelage that started this utilization of military force in order to enrich the global corporations or the, the, internet, the multinational corporations that were started by American firms. And this branched out. Not only was that and so many other interventions in the meantime, their ideas, but so was the coup in Iran when the Anglo-Persian oil company was nationalized. The, the Iranian sector of it was nationalized by the Iranian government. It was the Dulles brothers who cooked up the idea to go bail out their corporate buddies uh, from Britain and reinstall this this corporation back into their hands. Now think what you want about nationalizing a company, a corporation, and think what you want about fighting for the corp corporation's rights of power in in specific nations when you're under contract. And should that contract be breached when new leadership takes over a country? You can think what you want about that. But there's no doubting the fact that this corporatism has affected us ever since then. Not only has the corporatism affected us ever since then, the, the geopolitic and our relationship with Iran has been affected ever since then. Right? So this did not happen in a bubble. It did not happen in a vacuum. There, there were consequences that followed this pattern. And it was the intervention on behalf of a corporation 
Could there have been another way? I don't know. Maybe the corporation could have sold that portion of its business to the country of Iran. I don't know. But the fact of the matter is that's not the route they went. And so it created all these, this domino effect that, that led into the future. And it's and still to this day, we hear about how much of a threat Iran is. Because, because and it all started at this point. Now, in John Perkins' book, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, he gets a little bit more into de- detail about this relationship, how the relationship actually works. And he tells you how the CIA infiltrates multinational corporations in order to pressure foreign governments to increase the profits, influence, and power of American-based corporations. So you have this public-private merger that has been taking place for years, and if these countries refuse to go along with the, the economic hitman, so to speak, then the jackals come in and attempt to overthrow them. Now, Klaus Schwab describes this in his book as you can either go along incrementally and we can take over, or there will be a revolution. And this isn't a new strategy. He's taken this strategy, whether he has links to the CIA or not, he has taken this strategy directly out of the CIA's handbook and is utilizing it. And he's not the only one who's ever done it. We know that George Soros hasn't been involved with, like, USAID funding rebels and terrorist organizations in order to to complete and enact revolutions in different countries around the world. And we also know USAID not only has ties to George Soros, but it also has a lot of ties to the CIA. So it would not shock me at all that these people are working hand-in-hand with the CIA, especially when you look at who their partners are. They have partners like Amazon. They have uh, partners like Bank of America. They have Lockheed Martin, Dow, DuPont, BASF, Citibank, Morgan Stanley, J.P. Morgan Chase, Rand Corporation, Brookings Institute, Chatham House, Harvard, Stanford, Oxford, Yale, like, they, they have a lot of influence over major think tanks, even the New York Stock Exchange and the New York Times. So you have Amazon, Jeff Bezos, the owner of the Washington Post, and the New York Times. I didn't even look at every one of their partner relationships. I just kind of scrolled through it and just ran across some that caught my eye. You can go through it. There's hundreds, if not thousands, on that list. And it's up there on the page, A to Z. You just run through it. And then when you look at Stanford, Oxford, and Yale, and Harvard as partners, well, it was revealed in the 1978 House Intelligence Committee that the CIA had long infiltrated universities. Long ago infiltrated universities working hand-in-hand with professors. So, 
this is this is just an open secret. It's right out there in the open for you to go find. There's even a, a CIA operation. What they do is they work with these professors. They schedule a seminar, have these professors give these speeches, and invite leaders and professors from across the world, even Iran and China, to come attend these seminars so that they can so that they can try to leverage these professors or leaders from other countries. So the partnership with media and academia, it's long established. I mean when you say the cathedral, really what you're saying are CIA controlled institutions. That's what you're saying. The CIA runs the cathedral. They built this cathedral. It's their cathedral. They anoint the the priests, the bishops, the pope. That's that's their job. That's what they do. None of these public-private partnerships happen outside the scope of the CIA. This is their creation. This is their monster. They are the Frankenstein to this monster. So, with all that laid out, is it so absurd to believe that we've hit a point in history that other nations have come on board with the U.S. in a potential global partnership like uh, the U.N. could is evidence of corporations or or these these other all these nations cooperating together? Is it so absurd that corporate interests are discussed at UN meetings? Bilderberg, for example. Is it so absurd to think that all these leaders from so many different nations coming together with corporate leaders? aren't discussing how to run this global capitalist system. And that's their ultimate goal, is how to expand this globalist market into countries that aren't on board yet. How to incorporate and invite other nations to to be on board with this global capitalism that has been the backbone of American geopolitics interventionism for the last I don't know, 100 years? These these open public-private partnerships are not unfamiliar. The, the creation of the Federal Reserve was a public-private partnership. Lobbying is a public-private partnership. It's the private it's the private sector coming in and influencing the public sector. The Obamacare, ACA, Affordable Care Act, it, it's an open secret that the insurance companies wrote that. They wrote the ACA. Corporate welfare is huge. I mean, that's a, that's a glaring representation of the public-private partnership, is corporate welfare. Now, in the WEF, World Economic Forum mission statement, they speak of a global public-private partnership. And over the last year, all they've been talking about is the Great Reset. So what is the Great Reset? Alex Jones says it, or Glenn Beck says it, it's a conspiracy theory. But when John Kerry 
says, yeah, we're going to be involved in the Great Reset, or Klaus Schwab says it, or they they publish a Klaus Schwab article in Time Magazine, it's for your own good. So James Corbett explains the Great Reset as a new social contract, which is a term that Klaus Schwab uses in the book, The Great Reset, quite often. And I, I suggest you read that book. It's not a fun read, I wouldn't say. But I think it should be a necessary read. But it's a social, new social contract that ties every person to it through an electronic ID, links to your bank account and a health records, and a social credit ID that will end up dictating every facet of your life. That sounds pretty fucking crazy. That sounds insane. When I first heard it like that and read that, I was like, I don't know about that. With that, I started doing some digging. And now I'm pretty sure that's a pretty good conclusion on what the Great Reset is. And if you listen to my interview with Pete, I would suggest suggest anybody that hadn't listened to that interview, go back and listen to it. Because, as I said, that's a nice primer for what I'm doing here. Right now, I'm getting into the weeds a little bit. And I'm, I'm reading out some stuff that I've written that, and that some other people have written, including Klaus Schwab himself. And I'm going to get into one of his books here in a few minutes. And we're going to dive into some of what he actually writes, what he actually says. Michael Reckingwald did a great series on the Great Reset. He writes, Klaus Schwab writes that the COVID-19 crisis should be regarded as an opportunity that can be seized to make the kind of institutional changes and policy choices that will put economics on the path towards a fairer, greener future. The Great Reset means reduced incomes, constantly repeated, and carbon use. But Schwab and the World Economic Forum also define the Great Reset in terms of the convergence of economic, monetary, technological, medical, genomic, environmental, military, and governance systems. The Great Reset would involve vast transformations in each of these domains, changes which, according to Schwab, will not only alter our world, but also lead us to question what it means to be human. All right, so if you're interested in the vast transformation in each of these domains, the monetary, technological, medical, genomic, environmental, military, and governance systems, I suggest you read Shaping the Future of the Fourth Industrial Revolution. We're going to cover a couple of chapters out of that. It's going to be mainly chapter three and chapter four, because I think those are the most pertinent chapters to what we're discussing here today. But the last two-thirds of that book is talking in grave detail about future technologies and how to use those future technologies to shape civilizations and societies. Michael Rechtenwald goes on, The Great Reset means the issuance, issuance of medical passports, which we've heard, soon to be digitized, as well as the transparency of medical records, inclusive medical history, genetic makeup, and disease states. All right. So there's a lot of people saying, well, this violates HIPAA laws. Well, does it? What if the SEC 
pressured the banks and told the banks, your score is dependent upon your ability to, now listen to me, your ability to receive loans, bailouts, favorable policies, FDIC insurance, yada, 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 licensing, whatever. You want to kind of bend the rules on some regulations and want us to look the other way? All right. Well, that depends on your compliance with monitoring and reporting on the how many of your customers do or do not have these health issuances in effect. And the more customers you are willing to cooperate with that are not cooperative with these systems, with this medical tyranny, with these medical track and trace systems, the lower your score and the less likely you are to be able to stay in business. Now, do you think the bank would suddenly have an interest in scanning your, your medical passport? seeing whether or not you're being transparent with your medical history, how many, if you've had the COVID vaccine, if you're susceptible to diseases, maybe whether your genetic makeup is written here. What about whether or not your great-great-grandparents owned slaves or worked for a slave owner or fought for the Confederacy? When you talk, tie this back to social justice and you think, oh, wow, for the last nine months, I've been hearing how COVID disproportionately a- attacks the black communities and minority communities. So for social justice, you have to be transparent with your medical records. You have to have the vaccine passport for social justice. For health equity, you must do this in the name of race relations. Are you a bigot? Are you a racist? Do you want black people to die? Do you want Hispanics to die? You have to do this. Anyway, that's kind of my take on that portion. Back to Michael Rechtenwald. He goes on. On the genomic front, the Great Reset includes advances in genetic engineering and the fusion of genetics. mRNA vaccines are a good example. Nanotechnology and robotics. Moderna's top scientist admitted in a TED Talk that the mRNA vaccine is is there to reprogram you. They look at you as a computer program, and they're reprogramming people with this new technology. In terms of governance, the Great Reset means increasingly centralized, coordinated, and expanded government and governmentalities. Even Klaus Schwab even writes about, we need big government. Limited, the the age of limited government is over. We need big government. The convergence of corporations and states and the digitalization of governmental functions, including with the use of 5G and predictive algorithms. Now, you look at predictive predictive algorithms. There was a story I had uh, found a a few months ago. It was last year sometime. There was a town in Florida that that were using algorithms to search the citizens of this town's Facebook, social media, 
and their interactions on social media, and then they were going and preemptively arresting these people for crimes that had never been committed. Luckily, the story was saying that they were ending that program, but who's to say that that isn't going to be implemented on a wide scale? All right. Real-time tracking and surveillance of bodies in space or the anticipatory governance of human and system behaviors. So everybody knows that we live in a track and trace database society. This is no surprise. Everybody knows that the CIA has a special department of financing called InQtel that works directly with social media corporations. And if you don't know that, okay, I'm telling you. Also, in 2011, CBS released an article stating that social media was being used by the CIA and the NSA. Then there was a study that just came out last year that revealed that Google and Microsoft had received over 1,600 contracts with the Department of Defense. So, just let that, just letting it sink in for a minute. This, this track and trace surveillance system, this, the, the facial recognition, all these things are right out there in your face. And when you start looking at it, and you start looking at what's being proposed here, it's all being tied together, saying we can use all these different tools, all these cool little toys we have, we can use to control the population and increase our wealth and influence and power. In another article, Michael Rechtenwald says, The collectivist planners of the Great Reset mean to drive ownership and control of the most important factors to those enrolled in stakeholder capitalism. The productive activities of said stakeholders would be guided by the directives of a coalition of governments under a unified mission and set of policies, in particular those expounded by the World Economic Forum itself. While these corporate stakeholders would not necessarily be monopolies per se, the goal of the World Economic Forum is to vest as much control over production and distribution in these corporate stakeholders as possible with the goal of eliminating producers whose products or processes are deemed either unnecessary or inimicable to the globalist for a fair, greener future. Naturally, this would involve constraints on production and consumption, and likewise, an expanded role for governments in order to enforce such constraints. Or, as Klaus Schwab has stated in the context of the COVID crisis, the return of big government. We hear this term stakeholder capitalism. So, what is stakeholder capitalism? Stakeholder capitalism positions private corporations as trustees of society and is clearly the best response to today's social environmental challenges. This is as defined by Klaus Schwab. He also defines stakeholder capitalism in another article. Stakeholder capitalism is further defined euphemistically by Klaus Schwab as a form of capitalism in which companies do not only optimize short-term profits for shareholders, but seek long-term value creation by taking into into account the needs of all their stakeholders in society at large. And in every speech I've listened to on this, they emphasize that 
companies are going to lose in the short term 2 to 5% with this what they call impact investing. So what are are you investing in green companies or are you investing in fossil fuel industry, right? What impact does this corporation that you're investing in have on the environment at large? So in order to control these impacts and to to move people away from the the profit seeking investing and into the impact investing, they've come up with this brilliant strategy of ESG guidelines. ESG stands for Environmental, Social Justice, Corporate Governance. So this is meant. This will necessarily devastate the, the, what small businesses have survived the lockdowns and all this just devastating redistribution are going to be ultimately throttled here in the next couple of years. Now, when when he's talking about stakeholder capitalism, let me go back up here. When he's talking about stakeholder capitalism, he says it positions private corporations as trustees of society. And he also says, well, that was okay. That was Rechtenwald that said, um, while these corporate stakeholders would not necessarily be monopolies per se. So, what he's saying, what what's happening here, and and I think I think this is what Rechtenwald was trying to say here in this paragraph, but I don't think it came across near as well as it should have. So when it comes to stakeholders, that is referring to citizens. The citizens in Schwab's thought process are the stakeholders. And as a stakeholder, you have skin in the game with these corporations and the impact they have on the environment, the impact they have on social justice and in society at large. And and how their corporate corporation is governed is is impact impacting the stakeholders, right? And we'll get into that a little bit more here in a minute. But it's gonna it's gonna deal with diversity and you know Yada 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 yada. I mean, all, all that comes into play. What what they what they expect to happen is not much different than what you see now, right? When these corporations are getting together at the World Economic Forum, who do you have there meeting with the corporation? We have politicians. The politicians are there as representatives of the people of their nation. So therefore, as a stakeholder, you technically, theoretically, I guess, have a say, but it is spoken by your politician. Now, how many times has a politician gotten elected to do a specific job and not done that specific job? Horton's rule, right? Isn't it Horton's rule? Isn't it that politicians will always keep their worst promises and break their best promises, right? So what makes you think that the politicians representing the stakeholders on the board of the corporations are going to be doing so in good faith, right? Because they're not going to pack the World Economic Forum with with 7 billion people, are they? Are they going to do a 
have it on Zoom for the entire world to sit in, and we can all have our say on how the corporations run? Or are you going to be represented by your politician the same way you have been all along? Okay, so in Klaus Schwab's Time article, he writes, The U.S. Business Roundtable, America's most influential business lobby group, announced this year that it would formally embrace stakeholder capitalism and impact investing is rising to prominence as more investors look for ways to link environmental and societal benefits to financial returns. But to uphold the principles of stakeholder capitalism, companies will need new metrics. For starters, a new measure of shared value creation. This is something he talks a lot about. There's a whole chapter. One of the chapters we're going to get into here in a minute is all about values-based technology, value-based creation. A new measure of shared value creation should include environmental, social, and governance, ESG, goals as a complement to standard financial metrics. Fortunately, an initiative to develop a new standard along these lines is already underway with support from the big four accounting firms and led by the chairman of the International Business Council, Bank of America CEO, Brian Moynihan. Thank you, Mr. Moynihan. I appreciate you being a representative for all the stakeholders that use Bank of America. You're doing the Lord's work, you fucking putz. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm going to get drinking. The second metric that needs to be adjusted is executive remuneration. In the new stakeholder paradigm, salaries should instead align with the new measure of long-term shared value creation. Finally, large companies should understand that they themselves are major stakeholders in our common future. All companies should still seek to harness their core competencies and maintain an entrepreneurial mindset, but they should also work with other stakeholders to improve the state of the world in which they are operating. They can bring the world closer to achieving shared goals as outlined in the Paris Climate Agreement and the United Nations Sustainable Development Agenda. <laughs> so, it sounds to me here, and I brought this up on Pete's podcast, are they talking about a global UBI? Are they talking about redistribution internationally to assist poorer countries the way that we've been doing for, for so long? Are they talk, talking about upping the ante? What are they actually saying they want to do here? Let me read that again. They can bring the world closer to achieving shared goals as outlined in the Paris Climate Agreement and the United Nations Sustainable Development Agenda. Okay? So there's a lot going on here. You know, the, the Paris Climate Agreement had all kinds of shit to do with banking and this, that, and the other behind the scenes. The United Nations Sustainable Development Agenda is like talking about you living in a fucking box. <laughs> I mean, just fucking insane shit, man. And I'll link those on here. Uh, it's been a while since I read the Sustainable Development Agenda. But in uh, Patrick Wood's Technocracy, The Hard Road to World Order, he, he says, Sustainable de development is technocracy. The sustainable 
development movement has taken careful steps to conceal its true identity, strategy, and purpose. But once the veil is lifted, you will never see it any other way. Once its strategy is unmasked, everything else will start to make sense. Okay, so now we're getting into the book. So when you get into Shape the Future of the Fourth Industrial Revolution, you get into Chapter 3. The title of Chapter 3 is Embedding Values in Technology. This whole chapter, he's talking about inequality, poverty, discrimination, insecurity, dislocation, or environmental damage. He says, rather than asking ourselves what outcomes we want from technological change, we keep finding that we have to react to undesirable outcomes. So his solution to not liking the outcomes of the technologies that people prefer is by managing what technologies are available to you. That, and that, that is a running theme. And you'll also see that when you get into the further into this chapter, he's actually using this really germane argument we've all heard used for intervention. And he makes it sense. He, he, he says, all technologies are political. Technologies are solutions, products, and implementations that are developed through social processes and contain within them a whole set of assumptions, values, and principles that in turn can and do affect power, structure, and status in society. So if I don't if we don't manage these technologies, then the power dynamics will shift. The structure of the society will shift. Our statuses will shift. We'll lose our wealth and our influence. We'll lose our status. We'll no longer be the top class of society. And we can't have that. We can't have this nonviolent, peaceful exchange of power or just the dissolution of power, which is what blockchain technology really shows is possible. He, he goes on, let me see, because technologies are socially embedded, we have a responsibility to shape their development, obligation to position societal values through technologies, though technologies, sorry, tend to transmit the values that are embedded in their design and purpose, consensus doesn't always exist on what those values should be. We can't possibly increase human well-being if we don't take the time to identify our collective values. And he says, a new social covenant, the World Economic Forum Global Agenda Council on Values, identified a broad consensus across cultures, religions, and philosophies on some shared human aspirations, which together represent a powerful, unifying idea of valued individuals committed to one another and respectful of future generations. So he makes it sound all so pretty that implementation of values and us shaping these technologies are for the good of society. And we know better than you. You don't know what's good for you. You see a cool technology and you go check it out. And, and it's destructive. Just look at our society. Technology is destructive. 
play. He never acknowledges the fact that they're, they have a knowledge problem, as any Misesian would know. The knowledge problem comes into effect. They can't possibly know what is best and what is going to be most profitable and most beneficial to societies over time. This hubris is what's gotten so many millions killed over the years. And here's a key. This is why I call it decentralized tyranny. Making societal values a priority cannot succeed from top-down regulation. It requires flagging values as an issue and creating the opportunity for people and organization to engage in new behaviors. So you get your Twitter mobs and the shame cults coming at you saying, No! That's racist! You can't say that! You can't possibly think that! Now, I'm going to backtrack a little bit. He says, Just as with newspapers, televisions, and radio, economic pressures and product management impact what billions of people know and how they know it. The open nature of the internet enables the rapid scaling of social media technologies while simultaneously making monitoring networks for content deemed antisocial extremely challenging. So he wants to get rid of all of the competition to corporate press. <laughs> then he goes on to say, it's not just technologies that need attention. People need responsible development too. Entrepreneurs and investors are the vanguard. Investors have the carrot with which to direct the development of the technologies. So he's kind of lifting the veil here a little bit. He's telling you this, this whole scheme of ESG comes into play here. We'll utilize the investors. We'll make the investors comply. The investors will then pressure the entrepreneurs, the corporations, the banks. That's where we get them. We get these investors saying, we're not going to invest in your company unless you meet these requirements or you stop manufacturing firearms or you stop dealing with Bitcoin. They're looking, they're looking for any way to hang on to this power that they feel slipping through their fingertips due to the technologies. And by managing the technologies, regulating the technologies, and, and shutting out any what they call destructive technology, or not destructive, what do they call it? Um, oh, I can't think of the word right now. It's similar to destructive. Disruptive. Disruptive, not destructive. Disruptive technology. It disrupts their power. It disrupts their influence. Changes status and, and power structures. We can't have all that. We can't have all that. <clears throat> so in chapter four, and if you read through chapter three, and I didn't, I didn't hit it on it very hard or at all, really. But he's talking about. He goes on to talk about how you're gonna have to force. It might be in chapter four where he says that. But you're going to have to force these countries that refuse to engage in the technological advances. You're going to have to force them to engage because they have to They have to be on the same page as us. They have to be able to cooperate with us. And what if they don't want to? What if they just want to live their fucking lives? What if the Amish want to be fucking Amish? <coughs> Excuse me. 
It just, it's this whole kind of imperialism, like entrenched in, in his whole, in this whole book. And that's why I said it kind of reminds me of this, like a technological mind comp. Okay. And in chapter four, he says, the impact of new technologies on wealth distribution and social cohesion is revealing that our political systems and economic models are failing to fairly provide opportunities to all citizens. So we have to have a digital dollar. And and if you're a white male that makes over $100,000 a year, then we're only going to be able to give you 50%. Like it's, it's going to trade at, at, at a two to one ratio. But if you're a minority or you live in poverty in the inner city, then it will trade at a one to two ratio. So we can create equity. Then he gets, then he gets really like decision makers must possess a capacity and readiness to engage with all those who have a stake in the issue at hand. In this way, we should aspire to be more connected and inclusive to make this industrial revolution connected and inclusive therefore requires our deliberate actions and commitment. So these decision makers, who are they? Oh, well, right here he tells us they're leaders across business, government, civil society, and academia, as well as the as well as younger generations. So I'm not involved in this. I'm not any of those things. But my opinion, the way I want to live, the choices I want to make for myself and my family, they don't come into play here. No, I have to give all that up. Any aspiration I may have had, I have to give all that up in order to fit into their idea of connectedness and inclusiveness. And here he makes another argument for imperialism. This one's a little bit more explicit. He says, uh, how, how relevant are these advantages, he's talking about technological advantages, to people trapped in poverty, marginalized in their communities, or living in areas underserved by the systems of prior industrial revolutions. Approximately 600 million people live on smallholder farms without access to any mechanization, their lives remaining largely untouched, even by the first industrial revolution. Okay, so are we talking about people that want nothing to do with Western technology? Like Islam, a lot of people in the Islamic world don't want anything to do with our technology. We've been trying to spread democracy and modernize these people for 20 fucking years. How much more do we have to do? <laughs> and he goes on to say, while new technologies, in addition to social resistance and institutional reform, may have liberated women and developed, one in five women in the Middle East and Latin America and the Caribbean continue to serve as domestic workers. Oh, those poor stay-at-home moms. They probably don't want to be a stay-at-home mom. Now, if they don't want to be, they shouldn't have to be. But Jesus Christ, you're talking about trying to shape a culture that doesn't want to be shaped. These people don't want to be changed. <coughs> they don't need you to manage their lives. They do not need you. And I mean, that that's like the main part of, of these two chapters that I wanted to read. He, he says some other interesting things in, in chapter four, but that was the main part I wanted to get to because I thought that was important. It really, he's painting a picture 
for a new type of imperialism or a new reason for empire. And everybody knows that it's the United States military that's going to be utilized to force these countries to live in these ways. Okay, so let's get into how they how they utilize this. How do they how do they how do they make this come into fruition? How do they implement all this? Right? <clears throat> well, I ran into a Glenn Beck episode where he talks about uh, organization PCAF, Partnership for Carbon Accounting and Finance. And their mission statement states they are facilitating financial industry alignment with the Paris Climate Agree- Agreement using greenhouse gases accounting methodology. Now, banks represent most of the available capital globally. And since the Paris Climate Agreement, the largest banks have still invested more than $3.8 trillion into the fossil fuel sector. This is equivalent to $2 billion for every day since the end of 2015, with no downward trend and no assessment of the carbon impact on that finance. So their assertion is they can't be trusted, that we have to get them in a binding agreement. We have to get these banks in a contract. So they go on. The following asset classes are currently covered by the methodology. Listed equity and corporate bonds, business loans and unlisted equity, project finance, mortgages, commercial real estate and motor vehicle loans. The globalization of PCAF also focuses on investors, i.e. pension funds, asset owners, and managers. We encourage investors to join the initiative and commit to assets and disclose their GHG emissions associated with their portfolio. By starting with a global group of willing financial institutions, capitalizing on their network, and engaging with other influential actors, NGOs, the UN, government, regulators, etc., the PCAF initiative aims to grow the number of commitments. Okay, so why is this important? Well, this is important because Citibank, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Amalgamated Bank, BlackRock Investing have all made this agreement. Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, has already added ESG scores to the dashboard of, of their 401, 401k holders. So we got the banks already working behind the scenes in an organization out of sight, out of mind, never heard of before. And we got them working out there on carbon footprint. We got MasterCard putting a carbon calculator on their website for MasterCard users. They're, they're doing a slow roll here, and they're bringing it right up into up on you. But how are they going to get people to commit to this? How are they going to get you to commit to this? How are they going to get your family members, your friends, your neighbors to commit to this? Well, they've been thinking about this for a long time. And they've been thinking about the technological age impacting employment and what that means and how people's meaning has been tied to their employment for so long and how we have to figure out a way to give them more meaning, different meaning. And I turned to that Yuval Harari article that Pete and I were discussing 
He says, you could argue that people already spend most of their lives in virtual games. Most religions are virtual games superimposed on the reality of life. Do this and there's a penalty. Do that and you get extra points. There is nothing in reality that corresponds to these rules, but you have millions of people playing these virtual reality games. So what is the difference between a religion and a virtual reality game? Recently, I went with my nephew to hunt Pokemon. We were walking down the street and a bunch of kids approached us. They were also hunting Pokemon. My nephew and these children got into a bit of a fight because they were trying to capture the same invisible creatures. It seemed strange to me, but these Pokemon were very real to the children. And then it hit me. This is just like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. You have two sides fighting over something that I cannot see. I look at the stones of, of buildings in Jerusalem, and I just see stones. The Christians, Jews, and Muslims who look at the same stones see a holy city. It's their imagination, but they are willing to kill for it. That's virtual reality, too. So how, how, where are we seeing this? We're seeing this all over the fucking place. You got the 1619 project. You got critical race theory. Who I you can trace its lineage to liberation theology straight out of Latin America, which was infiltrated by the CIA via the Catholic Church and the ties to the CIA through the Catholic Church, which pushed me down another fucking rabbit hole. So we're not going to do that today. You got the American mythos, right? I cannot tell a lie. You know, I chopped down the cherry tree. You know, like, the the whole American mythos. Fucking, you got the whole mural in the Capitol with George Washington sitting up in heaven looking down upon the senators. You know, you got wokeism and SJWs. Uh, you have the COVID cult that believe a virus that has a 99.7% survival rate is the end of the fucking world. And, and the corporations are leading the way. They're, they're leading the charge on this, right? They're waving their rainbow flags and they have their BLM fucking signs. And they're just, they're just pointing this, this fucking army of fucking lunatic virtual reality players where, where to engage and fight each other. I mean, we've heard Dave Smith talk about it. We've heard Tim Pool talk about it. Like, we've seen the meme of uh, 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 the banker saying, oh, yeah, just just introduce them to, to racism or whatever the fuck that shit was. Wokeism or whatever, you know? And so when, when people ask, what are these billionaires, what does George Soros get out of spending $30 million on the Fer Ferguson protest, $220 million on racial justice organizations? When he's financing these attorney general in all these different states, what's he getting out of it? These fucking people, he's got them playing a fucking game. They're, they're putting meaning in these people's lives through this like virtual world that they're creating through all these fucking lies so that they can implement their strategies, so that they, they can implement this corp corporatocracy, so that they can fucking continue to merge private and public without people paying fucking attention to them. And again, the cathedral's all on board because the CIA runs the cathedral. And this is their fucking monster. So everybody's playing this game. And when you look back at the... It, uh, shit, I fucking lost my place. But, but no, all these, all the media, the, the corporations, academia, they're all playing this fucking game. They're all fucking playing this game. 
And what are we hearing? Well, when the acting chair out of of the SEC, Allison Heron Lee, spoke to the Center for American Progress about enforcing and mandating ESG compliance, she said, The most fundamental role that the SEC must play with respect to climate and ESG is helping to ensure material information gets into the markets in a timely manner. Investors are demanding more and better information on climate and ESG. And that demand is not being met by the current voluntary framework. Not all companies do or will disclose without a mandatory framework, raising the cost or resulting in the misallocation of capital. Investors also aren't getting the benefits of comparability (coughs) that would come with standardization. And there are real questions about reliability and level of assurance for the disclosures that do exist. Meanwhile, issuers are assailed from all sides by competing and potentially conflicting demands for information. That's why we have begun to take critical steps toward a comprehensive ESG disclosure framework aimed at producing the consistent, comparable, and reliable data that investors need. Oh, remember? Those are the ones that have the carrot. They got the carrot. You got to get those investors on board. They got the carrot that everybody will follow. I found this part extremely interesting here. She goes on to say that in 2010, under the leadership of Mary Shapiro, the Commission for the first time provided guidance to public companies regarding existing disclosure requirements as they apply to climate change matters. Part of what the staff will do now is review the extent to which public companies address the topics identified in the 2010 guidance and comply with current requirements. It's also important that the staff engage with public companies on these issues and use the opportunity to evaluate the current state of climate disclosure. Much has changed in the last decade. In terms of market practices for gauging ESG-related risks, in terms of the science of climate change, and unfortunately, in terms of the urgent nature of climate-related risks. And we need to assess how these risks are being analyzed and disclosed by companies now to inform an update to the 2010 guidance and to inform our policymaking going forward. Of course, we already have an extensive public record demonstrating investor desire for the SEC to ensure better disclosure in that space. But we must also make progress on standardized ESG disclosure more broadly, such as offering guidance on human capital. Disclosure to encourage the reporting of specific metrics like workforce diversity and considering more specific guidance or rulemaking on board diversity. Another significant ESG issue that deserves attention is political spending disclosure. The SEC is currently prevented from finalizing a rule in this area, but political spending disclosure is inextricably linked to ESG issues. If you Uh, donate to the wrong candidate, you'll be affected. Consider, for instance, research showing that many companies that have made carbon-neutral pledges or otherwise state they support climate-friendly initiatives have donated substantial sums to candidates with climate voting records inconsistent with such assertions. Or maybe because they like the other shit the candidate stands for. Maybe the other candidate... Maybe... Maybe the candidate that's for climate change is also for slavery or some crazy shit like that. 
So they, they want to fucking take into consideration, okay, well, you donated to the wrong person, so, you know, we, yeah, you're going to lose some points off your ESG score. All right. To make things worse, March of this year, 2021, a press release came out that says, this task force brings together a broad array of experience and expertise, which will allow us to better police the market, pursue misconduct, and protect investors. In addition, the Climate and ESG Task Force will evaluate and pursue tips, referrals, and whistleblower complaints, red flag laws, anybody, on ESG-related issues, and provide expertise and insight to teams working on ESG-related matters across the division. It's easy to see why these huge multinational corporations are getting so woke. Their credit and well-being depends on it. So I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, well, who's going to suffer? Or who's not going to fucking suffer? I mean, we've seen people losing their jobs to Twitter mobs. They'll jump all over this like like it's the fucking, like flies on shit, man. They're going to be all over this. This gives them more power. You're giving the people that, that the, the masketeers, the fucking COVID cult, those fucking white liberals, those fucking authoritarian fucking douchebags that are shaming you left and right for saying, I don't think I need the vaccine, or I want to see what comes out with the fucking testing, or I want to see what happens, or hey, somebody needs it worse than I do. Those fucking people that are shaming you for saying shit like that are going to be the ones that jump on this. And they're the ones that are going to be policing you. And this is going to affect your bank account, the way you purchase, the way you fucking operate in society. You're either going to comply or you're going to be cut the fuck off. And goddamn if this isn't reminiscent of Operation Choke Point. It's almost as if Operation Choke Point was a goddamn test run to see if they could get away with this shit. I mean, the DOJ was pressuring banks to cut off loans in, in banking in, in, in institutions to gun dealers and manufacturers. And then we saw banks drop Trump. We saw what it was, was it Bank of America that, that was like tracking the, the purchases in Washington, D.C. and turning over like to the FBI, everybody that had made purchases on their card in D.C. on January 6th. People are losing their fucking Patreon. They're losing their 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 jobs. You got you got payment processors refusing to work with people. And where where does it stop? If the, the bank's going, is the bank going to be required to report you for 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 buying Bitcoin or a cryptocurrency because of the use of energy that it takes to um to to run a block or to and to mine for Bitcoin? Are they going to report you for purchasing a three D printer? or a ghost gunner, or a trigger guard, or whatever else. I mean, they're going to be tracking all of your, all of your purchasing, all of, all of your, 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 your day-to-day living. Whether or not you have a vaccine passport is going to configure into this. If you, if you run a company, if you own a business, a small business, uh, how many minorities do you employ? How many minorities are in management? How many minorities are on the board of directors? You know, like, uh, it's just insanity. They are getting into every aspect of our lives with this. And they are going to cut us off. They're going to cut off your ability to have a 401k, to save money, to 
to do business with credit unions, to do business locally. It's all going to be corporate ownership. And I mean, you know, imagine if you fucking smoke or you drink or um, if, you, if you're immunocompromised, like, does that count against you? Are you now a laggard on society? You know? And, and, and how, where is this all going to affect you? Are you going to be able to get, you're not going to be able to get a mortgage, a car, a, a car loan, a, a banking? Like, what, what are they coming after here? And this is how they're going to get your guns, man. This is how they're going to fucking take your fucking guns. You refuse to, you refuse to comply. You refuse to turn them in. You refuse to sell them back. Okay. That's fine. Oh, guess what? Your bank account's been frozen. Just frozen. That's it. You can't do business anymore. You can't buy food. Can't buy diapers. You're you're shut out. Oh, oh, you don't have a vaccine passport. Okay, your bank account's frozen. You can't you can't do business. Nothing. You can't do anything. All because of these draconian fucking rules passed down by by corporations, funneled in through the SEC, and they're going to be they're going as as he said, it's not going to be top down regulation. This is going to be average people. This is going to be. The corporations you do business with, the banks you do business with, the people you know, this track and trace database system is going to influence you in so many ways. And there's not going to be anybody you can fucking trust. It, this is fucking insanity. It, it, I've been on this for fucking a month, just fucking going berserk on this. Like, why is nobody else talking about this? This freaks me the fuck out. So... I know John Bush is putting on a seminar where he says we can defeat this. I do plan on checking that out because I'm hopeless that that we're able to backdoor this in some way, shape, or form. But this is really, I find this extremely terrifying, what, what is happening right now. And that it is, the tyranny is coming from all around us. It's not just coming from above. It's coming from our, our neighbors. Um, college students, who knows if if your kids are going to be involved in this. I mean, we've already heard of some kids turning in parents for being at the at the uh, Capitol on January 6th. Banks are getting involved in this. Investors are getting involved in this. And if you have a 401k, you're an investor. So this is this applies to you. They're coming after you. If you buy Bitcoin, you're an investor. They're coming after you. I mean, this is this is real fucking dystopian fucking shit here, man. But it's been a long episode, and now I've kind of reached the conclusion point and said all I think I can really say about this. Um, they want you to believe it's for our own good, and I don't buy it for one second. And uh, I hope I'm wrong, you know? Maybe I am. Maybe I went through all this shit, read all this shit, studied all this shit for nothing. I hope so. I hope that's the fucking case. Oh, all of y'all can fucking email me one day and be like, ha, you're a fucking idiot. You wasted a fucking month on this shit. I hope so, man. Hey, if y'all haven't subscribed, go subscribe. You can find me at the Libertarian Institute, libertarianinstitute.org, forward slash year dash zero. Um, and I'll have all my notes and shit. They're all fucking garbled, but I'll have all my notes and all the links at my substack, tommysalmons.com. I'll edit that. All right. So thanks for listening. I'm glad y'all made it hour and a half, a little bit short of an hour and a half. Uh, my, I'm tired of talking and now I got a lot of editing to do. So, late.
to pick and choose Well, it's a game that was made for you to lose It doesn't really matter how many times It's the same old worn-out story, same old lines They're all pointing dirty fingers in hypocrisy Bragging on their feet to mediocrity again Never really making any kind of change But they keep on getting re-elected And I find that strange and That's why I say fuck them Don't feed them cause we don't even need them I never celebrate the tyrants out of taking our freedoms Yeah, I said fuck them Don't feed them cause we don't even need them I never celebrate the tyrants out of taking our freedoms What's it gonna take? Don't even need them, I never celebrate the times that I've taken up.